You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Say hello to my little friend. To infinity and beyond. Like tears in rain. On Wednesdays we wear pink. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Tears looking at you, kid. You talking to me? You're gonna need a bigger boat. You'll always have Paris. And welcome back to another episode of Films and Friends. My name's Josh and I'm joined today, as ever, by my co-host Tobias. Hello, second time's a charm. And we are joined today by our second friend, in inverted commas, Oliver. Hello. So Oliver, look, what we like to do sort of to, when we get someone on the podcast is to first ask them how they know one of us. So how do you know either me or Tobias? Well, I just happen to be Tobias's brother, by coincidence. <laughs> Which is very convenient. Well, yeah, exactly. It's convenient that you're visiting as well, because um, as... You stated on your occupation box of the survey, uh, you are a sixth form student. I am indeed, yes, which means that I don't normally get the chance to come see my dear old brother. Um, but circumstances have been right, and so here I am. And you're lucky that your brother has a podcast that he can invite you on to. Well, quite. Yeah, what guy in my 20s? Of course I was going to have a podcast. <laughs> that is very fair. So uh, before we kick off into um, talking about Oliver's films, I think the first thing I want to do sort of, because we're recording this on the 1st of November, this should sort of be, I think, our sort of uh, special uh, spooky Halloween edition, is I just want to get your you, both of your takes on what is the best horror film of all time. And I'm going to go first because I haven't really given you much time to think about this. Yeah, so my it. bet for it is, and I'm not a big fan of horror, as I've said a lot on the podcast before, my favourite horror film of all time is 100% Shaun the Dead. And not just because it is the best horror film of all time, but the hill on which I'm willing to die is both that it is the greatest British film made in the 2000s and that before he dies, Edgar Wright will win Best Picture. At least he should. To be fair, I do agree with that bit. Yeah, all, all of Edgar Wright's films are brilliant. Especially, I think, Baby Driver is up there with the calibre of all his other films, considering that some people didn't really enjoy it. Yeah, it didn't get a lot... <clears throat> sorry, it didn't get as much love as I thought it would. Yeah, because I remember the trailer came out and people were buzzed saying, oh, it's Edgar Wright, oh, this looks like a brand new venture for him and it looks interesting because it's, hey, music set to action. People seem to enjoy that. And then when it released, people just kind of... I, I don't know what didn't click with people. I think it has um, to sort of... It's a very unfair criticism of Edgar Wright himself here, but I think it has in some ways aged poorly because obviously it's got Kevin Spacey in quite a starring role. That is true. I'm fairly sure that was... Was that his, like, sort of the final film before we well, yeah, came out? The one after that would have been uh, All the Money in the World, but he didn't do that. They replaced him with, like, Crystal yeah, Pump, didn't they? Yeah, that was the one that had the whole uh, replacement drama, yeah. It was very poor timing, I guess. Yeah, but... You can't really pin that on Edgar Wright. And, no, no, of course not, no. And here's here's a little bit of a spicy take. Um, Kevin Spacey has some fantastic roles that I think should be kind of... I, I know trying to, trying to respect them and praise them in a vacuum is hard when the person behind the role is Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, no, but he... I mean, I feel like it's... It feels disingenuous to not separate the person from their role. I think it comes down to the fact that eventually it's sort of like maybe whether or not you sort of shouldn't be rewarding them for what they're doing. So it's like if if if, if me watching Seven would be is directly financially benefiting Kevin Spacey or giving him awards is he's getting some kind of pride money for whatever, stuff like that. That's probably the bit where you draw the line. I think objectively saying that he's good in that film isn't, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I think it's just, it's like when, for example, like Brian Singer winning the, uh, being nominated for an Academy Award last year. Yeah. 
that was a bit sketchy because ultimately he stands to financially benefit a lot from that. Whereas, obviously, Kev, me rewatching Seven tomorrow night isn't going to financially benefit Kevin Spacey True. in that way. Yeah. And you've got, see, what I was going to say is that uh, one of my favourite characters in any film of all time is Kevin Spacey's character in Pay It Forward. Uh, have you seen that one? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. So it sounds familiar. Essentially, the film is from either the late 80s or early 90s, and it was one of those films where it, it was all about sending a, a an uplifting moral message um, through a, a story that's a bit dark. Basically, the, the, the story is this teacher arrives at the school and wants to start this program about paying forward nice acts. So it's not about reciprocating a favour, it's about receiving a favour from a stranger and saying, well, you know what, today I'm going to buy someone coffee, today I'm going to help someone out. So it's all, that was basically the, the moral, as in, you know, of course, pay it forward. And Kevin Spacey's character in that film, he's a, a high school teacher. And he falls in love with, uh, I can't remember if she was another teacher, um, but she's definitely a mother of one of his uh, kids in his class. And he's really sensitive, and it turns out that he's got burn marks all over his chest from where, as a child, his dad had beat him and literally set him on fire with petrol. Um, so it's a super dark backstory, and his character is just so vulnerable and caring, and I know it's weird to say Kevin Spacey's character is being nice to kids, considering him, but the point is, the character is such a, a, a vulnerable, interesting character, and Kevin Spacey really did that role to perfection. So that is one of my favourite characters of all time in any film, um, and unfortunately it just happens to be Kevin Spacey portraying it. And I think that is something that will eventually sort of, I hope, even out in that sense. I think there's going to be a bit, obviously, given the Me Too movement, I think there sort of is inevitably going to be like that sort of another watershed moment of sort of how we deal with these things. Because sort of it's very well, it's all well and good saying, oh yeah, well, the, this person has done X, Y, and Z, therefore I can no longer enjoy the art they've made. And I think there has to be, I think there will eventually be some kind of balance struck between, obviously, being able to separate the art from the artist to an extent, but also being able to pay the appropriate respect to the victims. But to get back to um, sort of the spookiness of the episode, so uh, Oliver, what is your favourite uh, horror film of all time? Ooh, that's honestly, I have to say, I'm always put on the spot when someone asks me what my favourite film in any sort of uh, context is, because I, cinema for me is one of those things that's very sort of, uh, uh, I guess, vague, for lack of a better word. I guess I... Um, it depends a lot on my mood and on what I'm thinking at that moment. Because there's so many films that if you remind me that I've seen it, I will say, oh yeah, that's an incredible film and one of my favourites. But in another moment, I will just completely forget it exists. So right now, um, I guess I'm thinking maybe Hereditary in modern horror. As for sort of, you know, uh, classic horror, uh, probably Halloween, mm. uh, sort of the original, which I'm fairly sure is what... Uh, Tobias was going to say, because I know him that well. Were you going to say Halloween? Yeah, I was probably going to say. I, I think if, if I was thinking classic horror films, I think Halloween is one of the films that holds up. Because there's this thing about old horror films that people just say they're cheesy. And they kind of are. There are a lot of horror films that are really cheesy. Whereas Halloween just kind of, it's endured. Like, the legacy's endured. There's something... Hmm undoubtedly spooky about Michael Myers and something 
undeniably charming about the story. Yeah. So it's a good story. It's a, it's a film that really has, has lived up uh, to its legacy throughout the years. And modern horror, I do really, really like Hereditary, but I think I'm going to go ahead and say It Follows is one of my favorite horror fair. films of all time. Very fair. Just because it took me a second viewing to like it slash love it. And I just think, yeah, the, the way it, it turns the horror trope of if you have sex, you're going to die um, on its head by literally making the horror of a film an STD that's like supernatural is just crazy. And the, the whole film has this really eerie atmosphere to it, mm. which is pretty much unmatched. That said... I do think that anthology horror is actually underrated. Films like uh, VHS or Southbound especially, those films are so good. That, But the problem is, I, I think because they're such short stories, people actually kind of um, forget about them in the, sort of in the face of bigger, more complex stories, because of course a two hour long film has more space to become complex as opposed to a film that's maybe half an hour long. I think another one of the big problems with old horror, and I think this is a problem in certain genres, is that there are certain films that have literally killed genres. Yeah. And I think especially stuff like parodies, like Scary Movie, it's like it'd be very difficult to make like a classic horror now because it's been parodied so many times that it would just come across as ridiculous. That said, I think um, you could still do something similar in the way uh, Wes Craven made Scream. Mm. I, I think uh, Scream was a parody of sort of, you know, all those slasher genres. But at the same time, it's actually a solid slasher flick itself. Yeah. And I think that there is that... Um, I think the the necessary ingredient in a slasher film these days would have to be a certain amount of self-awareness. Oh, of course, yeah. I think you have to sort of... I think at this point, like, you have to kind of go... Maybe that's the point, sort of scream to go a bit meta and then now. But to be fair, I can't really think of any slashers that have come out in really recent... There are slashes that come out in recent years that have been sort of like particularly popular. Um, well, I, well, I was just going to say, um, Halloween 2018. So the mm. Halloween reboot really uh, works as a modern slasher because it doesn't try and. Oops, sorry, just banging the table with my foot. Um, it doesn't try to be a classic slasher. It evolves the classic slasher formula with a more, like, a punchier soundtrack, a bit more fine-tuned violence, if that makes any sense. Because slashers, like, original... The, the first few slashers, so, like, the original Halloween is basically someone just got stabbed. Then, as it started going towards... Almost until Wes Craven made Scream, it was all about the body count and how much blood you could put on screen, which I think is just a bit useless, which is why slashers are a film I don't really enjoy. But then Halloween 2018 compacted um, mm. the violence to make it effective, to really show how, oh yeah, no, Michael, Myer, Michael Myers is scary. He will uh, kill someone, take their teeth, and pour them over the door of the bathroom. Like, he you know, doesn't care. When you say that, actually, that sort of idea of refined violence, what immediately comes to my mind is uh, Bone Tomahawk. I don't know if you've seen that. It's by uh, S. Craig Zahler. That film... I, I will defend that film to the rest of my days. It is such a good film. It's harrowing. It's, it is harrowing. Not to mention, of course, the violence 
there's very little violence. Like, the big shocking scene that everyone knows is legitimately in the last 15-ish minutes of the film. And this film is, what, two hours and a half? It's, it's fairly long. It's, it's, it's a long film. It's, it's a, a Western. Yeah. And it follows the Western formula of slow burn, they're in the town, they're talking to people, expedition. But, yeah, it, but that, it fits in. It's such sort of... um, It's that idea of, uh, I guess, you know, sort of refined, but in the sense of a very specific set of actions done to this one victim but done in just it's almost an analyzed um action sort of it feels like Craig Zahler actually thought about what is sort of the the most unsettling thing i can have these sort of so-called cannibals do to this one person and it, it's it's relatively short scene. It's just a short moment. It happens and then they move on because it's, you know, it is the climax. Other things have to happen in that bit of the plot. And yet that bit does stick in your mind because it's such a sort of, um, it's almost like a shot, as it were, of, of, of gore and violence, which I think is a, an effective tool for horror that I think um, I enjoy seeing a lot and I hope is something that uh, will, will um, become... At least, probably more prominent in horror. I do like when it's placed, when when violence is placed in the right moment to sort of expound on what's been um, presented earlier. Yeah. Sort of the idea of raising the stakes with sort of climaxes and some violence, but you know nothing especially. Well, you know the fact that the first bit of violence when they finally confront the natives, you don't see it. No, you don't. You don't. You, you actually don't see it. You see the aftermath. You see just the the you know the sort of the this one dead body lying there, but you don't actually see the moment in which they that happens. But with that, it starts this sort of you know the the tension that's already been rising the entire film, slowly, slowly starts rising there with some the suggestion of violence, and then it sort of explodes as it were with this actual show of very sort of cruel specific violence that then sort of um continues on and leaves you on a sort of high in a way until the end of the film where you finally sort of release that breath that you didn't realize you were holding i think there is something to be said for sort of like um there's something there's something very sort of visceral about seeing a load of blood but i can vividly think like in the recently the most violent thing the most disturbing act of violence i've ever seen i think in a film that really just, just i couldn't like look away from the screen was in um what's the guy called who did 12 years a slave oh uh, uh, i can't remember i'm trying his name right now but yes it um, was their widows Widows, yes. Yeah, there's a, very, yeah. there's a very specific bit in that where they're in a bowling alley and it's Daniel Kaluuya and he's torturing this guy and it is honestly... He, he does something very simple to the guy and it is honestly the most horrific thing I've ever seen on film. Yeah. It's like, um, uh, what is it? It's Casino Royale towards the end where Daniel Ooh. Craig's tied up to the chair and he just gets uh, basically just... It's not even a whip, like it's a proper. It's, 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 a, proper, I think it's a rope, isn't it? It's, it's sort like of like a, a tied, a knotted it, rope. It's a knotted rope to the balls. And yeah, that it's was pretty visceral. <laughs> it's that. It's that pr- I, I, I like that idea of sort of, you know, because horror, people always like to make it a splatter fest and, you know, also in a way ex- try and sort of promote its um, sort of a, a weird kind of um, intellectual side of horror. But when you contrast that with these sort of very frankly primitive shows of violence where it's a very sort of efficient way of 
how can I inflict the most suffering on this person I'm trying to sort of make suffer? What what is what is sort of the you know the the fastest way I can make them suffer, and the most you know how how can I sort of um, accentuate their suffering? And it's a very sort of primitive thing, because <laughs> I guess that's sort of what people are like in a way, especially you know if you think about the way torture has been sort of um, uh, developed in actual human history. It is that sort of savage sort of primitiveness in humans despite them thinking that they're above that if that makes sense yeah that's a very interesting point i think um one thing i would like to talk about because i think in um before we for the podcast and you mentioned like you do you like in terms of your favorite films you are fairly big into horror yeah so what kind of horror films kind of like genres of horror films are kind of your favorite and which ones do you tend to avoid well i, I do tend to avoid sort of um slashers i realize i like i do like a good slasher but most of them are sort of older ones i think i um i i like films that push the envelope a bit things like in recent memory things like the witch or hereditary that kind of horror i think i guess i just value creativeness if that makes sense you know uh, creative uh, creativity that is more than anything else in the sense that You've got lots of slashers recently. Things like, you know, um, The Gallows or... Happy Death Day, to be fair, is its own thing. But The Gallows, where it's just a guy with a, with a noose that just hangs people. I haven't seen it, but that is the concept. And hey, I can't the say... the Bye-Bye Man, though. Well, the Bye-Bye Man. Spooky's film of the year. I mean, yeah, d- don't think it, don't say it, am I right? Um, but, you know, I think slashers... The problem with slashers is that they, they can lead to... Um, a certain amount of laziness but because slashers horror is this sort of um it's is its own universe and i think anyone who makes a horror film is essentially collaborating in adding a little piece onto this nebulous thing that is horror and slasher flicks are their own thing inside that but the problem is i think a lot of slasher films essentially um depend on the idea that everyone knows it's a slasher flick, so they'll, one, forgive certain things. So basically, it feels like the writers try and get away with sort of a very sort of, you know, contrived plot point or a very lazy plot point simply because, oh, it's a slasher, the plot isn't the point. I think um, they these films depend on being part of the slasher flick subgenre in a way that... Um, they, they assume audiences will forgive lots of things, and audiences do. But for me, I don't think that's what I necessarily look for when I look for horror. I, I can't say... The problem with slasher flicks is that they are also physical. The, you know, the whole point of slasher is he kills... Per, you know, the, the murderer will kill someone, and also probably do it in a way that's very sort of gory. Mm-hmm. But then things like Hereditary or The Witch, the entire thing about that, especially those two, it's... Also The Babadook, similarly... It's not really about the horror. The true horror bit is the fact that the family is sort of, you know, breaking down and that the home is no longer safe. It's not really about what it is that happens to the characters, as in whether they're killed or not by a demon or whatever you want to say. It's the fact that they are going through this harrowing situation and that they are essentially people trying to figure out what they're going to do in the face of, for example, in The Witch, the baby disappearing and them thinking it's the fault of one of the daughters, for example, as opposed to simply a slasher flick where it's, how do I get out of this house without getting stabbed? 
I, I think there's a certain amount of depth that slasher flicks can't really reach. But I do think um, basically, I think there is a sense of Schadenfreude in horror in general. Of course, you, you do take pleasure in seeing the, the the pain of others. But I think that for me, there's a certain amount of Schadenfreude that I get more from emotional suffering and sort of mental, sort of harrowing experiences than just from a physical thing. Yeah, I think one of the things I find the most disturbing about any kind of horror film is I the thing it just I don't know it's like on, I don't know if it's like maybe on a primal level the thing that really gets to me is like you know body horror. Yeah, like I've tried watching The Fly before and I just couldn't do it. Oh yeah. See, that's the thing with body horror. It's um, it's a strange one for me because some body horror films go a bit too strange. Yeah. So it's gratuitous I, in that. Sense. So I think The Fly uh, is pretty effective body horror. Um, Akira actually ends up being yeah. a body horror film. But then there's stuff like uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man or um, I can't remember the name of uh, the, the other Cronenberg um, one um, where it's to do with television. Videodrome? Videodrome. Yeah. Though Those go to the point where it's kind of it feels like you're watching um, one of those weird art films in an art gallery hmm. which is you know, a film that you you're not really meant to sit down through the whole way, um, where, where it's that kind of just too it's too experimental, and I just think it goes a bit too weird, um, and that's I think the the concept really trumps the execution. Yeah, in a lot of body horror films. I think another problem with body horror is that it sort of it becomes samey in a strange way. You know, it's it's body. I can I can appreciate body horror as this method for creators to try and figure out new ways of just disfiguring the human body in more and more disturbing ways. But I think that... Um, I think for me, a horror film is a com- is the sum of all its parts. And I think that that is what I was saying about slasher flicks. My problem is that it is... If you, if you look at a film and it's a slasher flick, that's because it is only a slasher flick. Well, I like films, I think, that have a certain amount of um, synergy between different types of horror. Like The Witch, you know, the bit with the apple that he sort of, you know, pukes it up. That is some body horror. The fact that he just regurgitates an entire apple that's just covered in blood and then dies after seeing Jesus. That whole bit is a sum of all these different types of horror. On the one hand, it's body horror because, again, I mean, you know, throwing up an apple is pretty bad in that sense. But then also this sort of psychological thing where, you know, the fact that he sees Jesus and then dies... Is it actually Jesus? The sort of you know, as in, is it him actually being at peace just before he dies? Is it him just sort of feverishly screaming? Not only that, but then the fact that it's the rest of his family's there while that's happening to him, and they watch that, and then there is an aftermath to that. So there is this element of sort of family horror, I guess I'd call it, where it's you know sort of families dealing with things. There's body horror, and there's also um, a certain amount of psychological horror centered around that one character that's going through that mm. so so thinking about films that are sums of all their parts uh you said that one of your favorite filmmakers um is uh del toro yeah and del toro i think is a lot more of a lighter filmmaker when it comes to the tone of his films he he doesn't go full-on horrifying horror but well. he does have scenes that are a real gut punch yeah in, have you what have you seen any del toro films as in guillermo del toro yes, yes. I watched The Shape of Water last year. I think that might be the only one I've seen, though. Okay, so Shape of Water is, is 
it's I different. Mean, <laughs> yeah, Shape of Water does have um, horror elements, but it's not really a horror film. Um, but say Pan's Labyrinth Ooh. is a dark fairy tale, but there is one particular scene which is um, the one a lot of people recognise from images. The, the one of the 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 guy, the the white. Oh yeah, pale, the, the demon thing. The yeah. thing with the, the eyes on the hand. Yeah, hand. yes, yeah. I've, I've seen that part. That's probably what put me off watching it. Yeah, well, that scene. So as a kid, that used to terrify me. And I finally got around to watching this film earlier this year, and that scene. Um, so all the whole film that there is this kind of feeling of something's a bit off and this is a bit dark. Um, that one scene is um, basically that monster. Um, that so so the surface level is it eats babies. Yeah, it's basically the daughter's version of Saturn um, of uh, Goya's paintings. Um, and when it when that monster screams. It, its scream is literally just like the cries of hundreds of babies that's eaten, yeah. which is absolutely horrifying. And and then the the, the girl uh, moves on to another scene, and sure, like the fawn is technically nice, but it, it is actually quite creepy. So anyway, Veldoro, some of all these parts, even though he he plays into this fantasy and horror, what's what you like the most about Veldoro? Well, um. I would have said it was hard to say, but while you were saying that about um, Pan's Labyrinth, also known as um, El Labyrinto del Fauna, that is to say the Fawn's Labyrinth, which I think is uh, a fairly different meaning, if you think about it, yeah, in its actual name in Spanish. Um, I think there's a certain level of horror and sort of um, understanding for those films. Also with, um, is it The Spine of the Devil that it's called? Uh, Devil's Backbone. That's the one it's called. Yeah, sorry, I just think of it in, in Spanish. Yeah, Devil's Backbone as well. Both of these films are heavily cultural. As in, you know, um, that you need a certain understanding of, for example, the Civil War, especially, to understand those two. And um, Spanish Civil War. Yes, that's what I meant. Yeah, the, the Spanish Civil War of um, the 30s. Well, 39, but still. Um, th there is... Because for Spain, even now, you know, I mean, just recently where they were, I think, what was it earlier this week that they moved Franco's body? Uh, yeah, it was uh, earlier this week, yeah. Yeah, they exhumed his body and all that. And that was a big deal, which I think was a bit dumb, it shouldn't have been. But um, it's this sense of, for Spain, the ghost of the Civil War and of the dictatorship that followed it hangs very heavily still. And so all these different films that explore this... um are in that way heavily cultural and heavily tied to Spanish culture. Not just through the Civil War, but also um, in their location and their characters and the attitudes of the characters, that very sort of sexist, men do this, women do that, isn't just a sort of caricature. It was honestly the way things were in Spain for a long time. Women were meant to just stay in the kitchen, have kids. That was all they were meant to do. Um, and so I think that what I like about Del Toro is another thing I like about horror in general, in that it's an extremely effective method of exploring culture, both in a general sense of, you know, humans, and also in a very sort of a national sense, or at least, um, I guess I'll say tribal sense, in the sense of, you know, for a race, in the, in the, in the case of things like Get Out, or... You know, in the sense of um, the culture of different groups of people, I guess, or different categories, is what I mean. It can be explored very effectively through horror, and that is one thing I like about Del Toro. He's a very good example of that. 
in and the sense that um sorry i was going to say that for example i don't know who might have seen or read um blood wedding by uh i forgot his name just now what's his name blood wedding was this angry uh, oh, I can't remember that. I've just forgotten his name. Which is Literature a, knowledge is something we are not good at on this podcast. Oh, <laughs> I should be good at this because I do plan on studying it, which is a bit embarrassing. But um, anyway, Blood Wedding by... Um, it's going to come back to me in just a second. Um, is a sort of... It's pre-Civil War, to be fair. But it has that sort of spirit of things going wrong. And, hey, you know, right at the end, it's very, it's very surreal. And not just that, but also the fact that, um, you know, both Leonardo and the groom kill each other right at the end. Which isn't really a spoiler. I don't think that's a spoiler because it did come out in 36, which was ages ago. So <laughs> I, I don't think I, I, I should be uh, told off for that. But um, there is a lot of sort of um, heavy, is this heavy sort of Spanish spirit of like the country, sort of countryside that is. And sort of the roles of men and women, especially, that Del Toro actually replicates from these sort of classic works of the early 20th century. And I think that's what I like about him. He's essentially, in that way, uh, a very good um, director at um, exploring culture, especially for... And I think a nice thing is that he sort of, you know, um, um, brings Spanish slash Hispanic culture to an English-speaking audience, which I think is always nice. I think it's one of the things I like the most about doing this podcast and something we were really keen to emphasise, and I think you've just really summed up perfectly there for both of us, I think, because the whole sort of the cultural aspect, obviously I could watch The Devil's Backbone and obviously I could enjoy it as what a film as what it is, but I highly doubt I would have the same emotional reaction as you. And I think that that is something that is very special about sort of international cinema. And I think that's why one of the things that I definitely want to do in my life is definitely watch significantly more international cinema than I have done before. Absolutely, hmm. yeah. No, international cinema is, is where it's at for storytelling. Uh, yeah. I mean, Raw, we, Raw is also, you know... Raw, Raw French, the French film. film. You didn't um, like it, but I, I fairly enjoyed it. You thought it was predictable, and it kind of was. Yeah. But it's also a very nice... Um, it's a very, uh, I guess, effective use of French culture in a strange way. I think there's, you know, a sort of a certain amount of um, the uni system in France is, you know, but I think it's less cultural than something like uh, Pan's Labyrinth. But it still is a sort of French film. Also, as a side note, I did just look it up. It's Garcia Lorca, which I feel very embarrassed about having forgotten. That's the author of um, Blood Wedding. <laughs> just to go back and correct my own mistakes as well, uh, Steve McQueen was the person who directed Widows. Yeah, we go, okay. one. But yeah, so um, to get sort of slightly uh, from your favourite films, uh, so what kind of uh, genres, actors, directors are you not the biggest fan of? Ooh. Um, I actually forgot what I actually replied uh, as that. But one of the most interesting ones I saw at the top of the list here is war films. Oh, yeah. Um, war films in general, well, I think it depends. Um, but my, my problem with war films is this sort of this glorification of war and also, at the um, risk of becoming political, of the military, uh, the military industrial complex, there is a sort of glorification of that. I mean, Clint Eastwood. I love Clint Eastwood in Westerns. He's great as a man with no name. He's good as Dirty Harry, despite the fact that Dirty Harry has its own problems as, in, as a film. He's good in it, though. That said, his films, the ones he directs, was American Sniper his? 
American Sniper, American Sniper and I can't remember which other one he did about sort of the Iraq War or Afghan War, you know, sort of American War in the Middle East in recent years. My issue with those is that they are a sort of absolute glorification of war in a way that f isn't really as sort of respectful as it might appear to be, if that makes sense. Something like maybe a World War One or World War Two film is slightly different in that it, it is a sort of most films, the same Private Ryan for example, is actually I think a decent film to sort of in a way of it of paying respect to what it was that sort of American soldiers specifically in that case did um, during World War Two, but something like American Sniper well, I guess also because modern day wars are a lot less cut and dry sort of you know, sort of like um, wars in the previous century do you think it, perhaps it is a bit like the fact it is also so recent as well? Do you think it is maybe. in some ways maybe quite a loaded subject? And yeah. it sort of bleeds, sort of your political opinions can sort of bleed into sort of how you view that. Because I, um, over the summer, I, ended up, I watched uh, Dunkirk. Mm. And to be fair, watching Dunkirk, obviously there's some people who watch it and go, oh, this is such a celebration of how great the British are or stuff like that. But actually, when you really think about it, Ultimately, you could ha that could be any of the countries that are involved in the war. Oh yeah, and it wouldn't yeah. be. It's it's like obviously some people will take in intense patriotism in it, but I think that in some way that would probably serve to cheapen it. And I think what it is, it's not about the war. It's not about the location. It's not about it's it's not about sort of British versus the Germans, and we were great and we were amazing. It's just about like people who were willing to sacrifice yeah. their lives because it was, in the World War II it, specifically, it was a situation in which like, we have to do this yeah. because it is, the world is going to, it's going to go really badly if we don't. Yeah. And I think perhaps the fact, as you said, it's less cut and dry in terms of the Iraq war and the sort of uh, war on terror, I think that's probably why it's a bit of a subject that is difficult to put on film without coming yeah. across. Back. But then having said that though, that, that's something like the Hurt Locker, that was quite successful, yes. I think. Yeah, but I think longer, it's it's um, more that war isn't cool, and it never has been, and it never will be. But lot most war films, at least recent ones that I can think of, are very um, dismissive of that and sort of glorify war in that way. Where you you know it's almost it almost feels like military propaganda, as in like look how cool war is. You can shoot the bad guys and be a hero. And it's like, mm, that's not... I, I so, like, the Hurt Locker, though, we actually sort of, you know, shows that well, war isn't that cool. You know, it's an actual... You know, it's it's a... It, it, war equals suffering quite directly. And I think, you know, that is something that some films just disregard instead opting for, like, explosions and, you know, sort of... It's a bit crass, I think. Well, I, I'd say you, you've not been watching the right films. That's the thing. That may be so true. So you've got, you've got Sigadio... I haven't seen the sequel. Did you get around to watching the sequel? Uh, I didn't know. No, but the, have you have you seen the original? Um, By I think, um, Denis Villeneuve, who I think I've still seen some of it. I think I saw Phil so, once. So Sigourney's pretty uh, a pretty great uh, venture into kind of the, the moral grey area of uh, undercover slash com uh, really confidential um, operations. So, so that's a pretty pretty hmm. good film. You've got um, Hurt Lockers, we've been mentioning, uh, is also a really uh, impactful horror, uh, not horror, sorry, a war film. Brain's still stuck. Um, but yeah, no, if, if a war film is telling the story it wants to tell and really focusing on being aware of 
the impact it's having. Oh, yeah. It's really important. There is, there is the sense of awareness. That That is the thing that lots of, I think, lots of war films. I must admit, I've watched very few war films because I don't really find them that interesting anyway, I think. For me, in general, sort of modern wars are a subject that I would rather learn about in a less dramatized way because that is a bit of an issue with things like war films that they sort of dramatize as a film does of course there's no problem with that that is what films do but it's something that i'm less interested in as a sort of you know i am generally interested in history and i think that you know for me hearing about things like the second world war is more interesting to me in like maybe a documentary or something more factual than actually sort of dramatic because the facts themselves are dramatic enough, I think. Yeah, I think coming back to what you said about it perhaps being crass, I think the times for me when it would sort of cross that territory is if you think of something like Star Wars. Star Wars is obviously a very sort of basic... Star Wars is effectively... In many, it's, well, Star Wars, it is a war film. Yeah. It's the rebels versus the Empire, and all the films have that sort of carrying through them. And it's very obvious in all of the films that rebels equals good... Uh, Empire it was bad yeah and I think when you try and translate that from a film like Star Wars or something like Star Trek you try and put that into a real-world narrative it does come across as crass because it is a very complex situation and it's not saying like it's like it's like people who say uh, it's sort of a very basic uh, patriotic principle of World War one and World War two is that you uh, you hate the Germans and yeah. all German soldiers were bad people because they were fighting for Hitler and they were Nazis so well in a sense, but also they were real people as well. Yeah. And like, it's not, it isn't, it is, war is messy. And to try to simplify it to the good and the bad is something that does come across as just unmistakably crass. Yeah. And it's something that should probably be avoided in cinema. Yeah, but I think, I think cinema is that kind of, at least maybe more mainstream cinema, generally, or stories in general, to be honest with you, like stories people like to hear, I think do generally end up boiling down into the good guy versus the bad guy so that is just the way we tell stories as i think a people but it does mean that um i think there's something that needs to be acknowledged and considered when mm -hmm. making a film like about war where you know people have a tendency to put things into black and white like that yeah and it, you know that especially well again world war Two. it's easy to say well yeah the nazis were bad because yes they were but something like the iraqi war for example it's and, you know, with all these sorts of uh, insurgents in the Middle East, I think there's a certain amount of nuance to their whole situation that just isn't considered in films like American Sniper, for example. Yeah, it's that. It's, it's about um, oversimplifying things that really can get... Um, not, not just uh, make messy things messier, but really uh, just mislead the public yeah. also because but, war films are usually made by the sort of war films generally don't consider the other side because of course an American isn't going to make a war film sent based around an Afghan an Afghan soldier if it is an Afghan soldier it's going to be an Afghan soldier that's helping the Americans there's that sense of um, it's a celebration of one's winning of one's side especially when they're winning otherwise it's a lament of their side having lost yeah and that, that's, that, that pretty much sums up uh war films that that's why more diverse stories are uh important as recently this year we had the documentary uh for sama which uh i didn't get around to watch but i read an extensive amount on basically it's a a documentary by a documentary filmmaker who is a refugee and it's her story of how she 
left Syria and had to find a new home for her family. So that's what's uh, really important now, and it's what we really keep saying, uh, and Josh keeps saying, it's that international cinema really yeah. broadens the horizons and brings those other sides into the uh, discussion mm. that are really needed. So, moving forward uh, with our discussion, we always like to ask people what films are meaningful from their childhood. Uh, it's a big core part of what shapes your taste in film, and the one that gets me that you put down is Star Wars Episode Three. Yes, I'm generally not the biggest Star Wars fan. I think they're all, they're, they're, yeah, they're good films. They're fun to watch, but just the fact that Star Wars Episode Three was the f- only Star Wars we ever had on DVD slash VHS um, meant that I watched it various times. And I re- I just really loved it as a film. When I, I when I sort of grew up a bit and went onto things like Reddit and found people just trashing these films, I honestly didn't understand why. Because for me, Star Wars Episode Three is a, a fun film. I mean, it's it starts in media res with you know Obi Wan Kenobi and Anakin just going and you know flying their starships, going into this one ship, fighting Count Dooku, chopping his head off. I mean, for a little kid, that was awesome. It was just you know you, you just, you're right into it. And it's just middle of the Clone Wars. And then, obviously, with General Grievous towards, you know, towards the middle. Then when Darth Sidious appears at the end, it's just, it's a good film. I like it. <laughs> I think there's definitely a risk of that film, especially being swept into, like, the badness of the prequels. I mean, the sense- prequels were pretty bad, but at the same time, I think I can appreciate what it was they were trying to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think if maybe, the, I think, and especially, I don't think that um, the uh, Attack of the Clones, the second one, would have been as weirdly received if it wasn't for the how bad, because the first one is objectively if the Phantom Menace. I know it is, we're sort of repeating something that's been said a thousand times, and there's probably an entire podcast dedicated to why it's such an awful film, but objectively, compared to the previous Star Wars, compared to any film, international trade politics <laughs> and the horrendous lines of dialogue in that film it doesn't work and yeah. i think that is i think it poisoned the well for the star wars prequels yeah. and i think i think they do they get progressively better i actually don't mind attack of the clones i actually do really like uh, revenge of the sith but i don't i think they're just forever tainted by their association with that franchise yeah but, and i think maybe now that the sort of they've rebooted the franchise and they're sort of getting a new trilogy going and that, the next one it finishes doesn't it the new trilogy at some point yeah, yeah. So this one finishes in the trilogy December. came out recently yeah. And I think they're doing... So I think that's the end of this saga. I think that's kind of like the... the what? How many episodes is it now? Uh, nine. Nine? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, I think it's, it's nine three trilogies. Films. Yeah, so it's these three trilogies that come together as a saga, and I think they're then just kind of... Well, there's all the spin-off another. bits. They've, you know, you've got The Mandalorian coming out soon. You've got uh, Solo that came out. You've got Rogue One... You've got all these different things. Yeah. Also, the video games. I mean, you know, the, what's it called again? The Fallen uh, Order. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That, you know, that, that technically is part of the universe. Although I must say I am miffed with Disney. I mean, I don't really feel strongly about Star Wars. I just think it's pretty cool. Yeah. It, it, it's also a cool sort of setting to explore things. But um, I will say that I don't really... I'm not a fan of the fact that Disney just completely uncanon... Sort of decanonized all of the extended universe, which has some pretty cool stories. But those have sort of been swept under the rug in a way and sort of have been acknowledged. I think that's a very difficult thing with like, especially with the internet now, yeah. is that canon has become so important to some people. And you see it a lot in sort of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe because they're sort of like, their whole thing now is they're sort of keep trying to like 
put stuff back together. Yeah. And there's sort of, I think some people are kind of overly obsessed with it. And like the whole thing in um, Avengers Endgame with them going in the future or in the past, that sort of messes some stuff up for people. Yeah. And you see a lot of people online really kicking off about that. And you kind of think, is it that is it that important? Well, I don't think canon is important. I just think that there is, um, it's more of the attitude between, the attitude behind completely disregarding canon like Disney did for example or like Marvel did simply put it just it bothers me more in how it in in the attitude it reflects of what these two well to be fair they're both owned by Disney so what Disney intends to do in the future and I think it's more the extended universe for example for your Star Wars being disregarded doesn't bother me as such because it still exists it's still there you can still read it and you can still consider it canon if you want my problem with them having sort of declared it non-canon is that any kind of story that is that uh, of that tone and style it is clear they're not going to make because if they were interested in making it they'd keep that kind of story in their sort of um, mind and it's more that they just won't create that kind of thing which I think can be interesting or at least well, they won't allow it to be created because and it's I'm also cynical because I'm cynical uh, I like to remember the um Star Wars and Marvel are just they're meant to sell toys for kids oh yeah for sure they're literally just, they're kids films yeah no I just I have a problem with Disney in general I mean I love Disney for like the things they've done because um, some films from my childhood of course are all sorts of different Disney films as for I think everyone ever but also I think it's also a problem that Disney as a corporation is very sort of sketchy you know in all the things they do especially in like copyright law the fact that copyright law is the way it is because of Disney you know, all that kind of thing. Where I, th- I think Mickey Mouse is meant to be coming out of copyright very soon, but I'm fairly sure it's going to be changed again and extended just because Disney wants to keep Mickey Mouse kind of thing. Yeah, I think I read the other day that it was supposed to, like, if it, if copyright had worked as it, as had it how it was intended when Mickey Mouse was first created, he would already be in the public domain by now? Oh, yeah, no, ages ago. But the thing is, Disney sort of, I think, lobbied um, uh, in the US Senate to have copyright law extended and changed so that they'd be able to keep Mickey under their copyright. And I'm fairly sure they're going to do it again. I wouldn't doubt it. Or maybe they might not, because they already own so many modern things now. I think Mickey doesn't make them as much money as he used to, considering all the other things they own. So I think they might sort of let them go, potentially. I mean, the the day Disney manages to completely eradicate all these... um. Chinese backpacks to <laughs> house with a Sonic logo. Um, it will be the day Disney wins copyright. Forever. Yeah, I think it is definitely a. It is there's definitely a lot to be said about um, the uh, sort of conglomerization of franchises. Yeah. and obviously that they buy Fox, and when you look at the list of what they, we look at the list of films on Fox and Disney own Avatar, they own Predator, and they own Alien as well. And it's like when you really break it down, it does become something that is quite. Maybe, maybe scary is the wrong word, but it does become sort of like it becomes troublesome in my mind. I think because you see, you and you hope that they will do the right thing with it, and they'll still give people the free. Like if they make another Predator film, they'll be given the freedom to do it, and they won't have to do. It but certain. you know they won't. Not if not if it doesn't make them money. Well, That's the thing with money being the main directive. I think that um, my big problem with it, beyond sort of any political or socio-economical things, is the fact that I like. No, I I really value. As I said earlier, creativity and sort of, you know, the sort of freedom, especially with things like horror, especially, but also in film in general, of exploring different, th- you know, things and expressing different attitudes and all sorts of things like that, even if they might offend some 
people. That was one of the things that upset me the most, uh, looking at the list of stuff that um, obviously buying Fox did, because it meant that they now own Fox Searchlight. Yeah. And Fox Searchlight is fantastic. They have done probably, this decade especially, probably some of my favourite films of the decade came from Fox Searchlight. Hmm. And the fact that it's now, it, potentially they might close that down or replace it with something else, that is actually quite worrying to me. Yeah, my, my problem with things like Disney owning so many things is that Disney, for example, um, have interests, of course, being a corporation. And it means that they are unlikely, I think, to actually finance certain types of film. Which means that um, all these kinds of film that I said I like, being, you know, sort of having a full spectrum, as it were, of films, it means that only some of that spectrum is actually given more than just enough, more than enough uh, resources to exist. While well, sort of, I think smaller filmmakers can struggle, obviously, because film is expensive. Well, and lots of smaller filmmakers, like, you know, they sell their house and things to make a, a film on the off, like, with the hopes that they'll make enough to buy back their house. Think, you know, things like that. Where it's something like a, chasing an artistic vision, I think, gets stifled a bit, or at least sort of um, becomes a bit tricky when you start putting in uh, sort of corporations and conglomerations well, and things. Well, think about corporations, money, and artistic freedom. Um, Josh and I have spoken about this before, but it's uh, the current Scorsese um, <laughs> slash old filmmaker uh, line of uh, Mar Marvel films are not cinema. What was your opinion on, on that kind of debate? Well, I mean, to, to be fair, the debate of what is and isn't art is... Um, I think it's irrelevant because again, um, I can't remember. I, wa I watched a very interesting um, video essay on this fairly recently on about discussing art. I can't remember who made it. It was very, very interesting. Um, but it, it's this idea, I think, of art. Pe people not wanting to accept art because they don't like it. But I think um, the Marvel films, in a way, are art because they are a work of love and a work of artists in all forms, you know, sound artists, visual artists, actors themselves. Um, and I, I think I think it's unfair to simply disregard all that work. I think that despite everything I've said about, you know, Disney and that, the films they make, at the end of the day, are still products of love. Well, you know, because maybe the board of directors that, you know, greenlight the, the production of the film might not really care about the film, they just want the money. But the people who are making the film, a lot of the time, are, you know, actually invested, of course. Because this is sort of, you know, it is a brain... Uh, I mean, you, you put a lot of effort into films. So I think that um, calling Marvel not cinema is disingenuous and also just wrong. Um, but I will agree that, you know, you can't just not like Marvel, which I don't particularly... So I, th I think um, I think everything is cinema, because cinema. That's what's great about cinema, that so many things can be cinema. It's one of those. It's I think it's 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 one of those um, forms of art that's actually, despite being relatively closed in that it's a very specific type of art and that it has to be you know filmed and all that. It's still very open in that you can film all sorts of different things and have it be cinema and sort of. Um, contribute to this big nebulous thing that I mentioned earlier that is cinema I think it is very I, 
I mean, I'm not going to go. Out, I'm not going to limb here and say I'm going to criticise someone like Martin Scorsese or Ken Loach and disagree <laughs> with their view of cinema because that would be foolish for me to do. But I think perhaps I understand why they say that. To be fair, yeah, that's and they the... have a lot more experience with cinema than I do because, of course, they make films that I, you know, I hope to make a film at some point, but I can't say I have made one, especially not ones with as much sort of prestige as them. But I think that, um, on the other hand, a lot of it is personal as well. And I'm not going to say they're old news, but there there is a certain amount of um, dislike for the modern, which is always, you know, is always going to be a thing. I think in some ways it is, I think, I don't know, I, I do struggle with it on a sort of basic level. of. I think it does, their, their sort of words do devalue the creative efforts of people. And yeah. I do find that kind of hard to get around. And I think it is, it is pointless to get into it about what is or isn't cinema. But I don't think there's any way you can watch a Marvel film and not take at least something away from it. Oh, for sure. And I think that's sort of like, maybe you can't take away as much as if you watch Taxi Driver or if you watch uh, Goodfellas or Casino or something. Mm. And of course, I wouldn't try and compare the um, the, the efforts that, that, that uh, Martin Scorsese goes to to make his film meaningful to sort of Iron Man because there, there, there are different messages. And yeah. I think there are significantly more profound messages, perhaps, in a Martin Scorsese film than a Marvel film. But the fact there are still messages in it and people can still take away from it or relate to it or it can help people at some point in their lives, mm. I think it's really difficult for me to come out and say, oh, yeah, I really agree with them. Because even if Marvel films aren't my favourite films in the world, I don't want to devalue other people's enjoyment of them. Oh, in the sure. same way we talked before about um, people who sort of weren't very... didn't sort of have any kind of... Um, sort of great feeling about uh, Paul Walker dying hmm. uh, in terms of the Fast and Furious franchise and sort of saying, oh, it's fine because he was only in the Fast and Furious, which weren't that good films anyway. Hmm. I think, like, what we said then was that it ultimately to sort of discount that because the films aren't very good, it takes away from people, and there are plenty of people who really identify with Fast and Furious and they really enjoy that film. And to them, Paul Walker dying would have been a tragedy. No. Yeah. And I think... In that sense, you always sort of, especially I still try and do it when I write film reviews or sort of talk about film, is I still try to have the sort of utmost respect for people who have made the films because they've gone to the effort to do it. Oh, for sure. And also the people who do enjoy those films. And it's, there's some people who will come out and say, oh, well, you're an idiot for enjoying that film because that film was objectively bad. But you're not because you can enjoy whatever you want. And regardless of my opinions of it, and I can say my opinions, and Martin Scorsese can have his opinions, but I think there's a very big danger of devaluing other mm. people's creative efforts and the ability of people to enjoy things. Yeah. And I think opening them up to sort of ridicule for it is something that should definitely be avoided. And I think it's a morally slightly sketchy area. That said, there is such a thing as bad cinema. I mean, films can be bad. And lots of films are. But at the same time, it is true. Like you said, people still made them. It's still something someone wanted to say, even if it's something that shouldn't have been said or, you know could have been said better yeah i think that's the thing with sort of um sort of film reviews and sort of criticism is that there is still i don't think i've ever seen a film is objective sort of abjectly awful i think there's something you can take away from everything and everything has its merits and i think that's something that perhaps sort of and i think martin scorsese was sort of um misquoted and i think he did say that actually it's like a theme park and it's sort of like it is this sort of like adrenaline wow crash bang wallop it is more uh, style than substance i will agree with that but at the and, same time the style you know there is an effort put into the style yeah exactly but i do I, agree with that and i think that perhaps he has been misquoted and sort of said it's not cinema it's not cinema in the traditional sense but it still has value yeah no. that, that was basically the 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 point of um Misquoting. Um, yeah. The thing about uh, bad films, films you, you uh, disliked, um, the, the last thing we like to ask people uh, is what they've been watching recently. 
and I know what you've been watching recently yeah. because uh, in the past, uh, not last night, but um, the two nights before, we uh, we watched some films. Uh, we got we a new did. TV in my place, and uh, we got to watch Killer Clowns from Outer Space <laughs> and Nightmare on Elm Street, which we hadn't actually seen. Have you seen Nightmare on Elm Street or Killer Clowns from Outer Space? Um, I, I definitely haven't seen Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I've have you seen heard of it. I have heard of it in sort of like a, a joke sense. Right. Yeah, it, it basically is. It's but I've um, I've seen bits of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, but I've never actually watched, okay. watched the whole thing. So, hot take. I liked Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and I did not like Nightmare on Elm Street. Killer Clowns from Outer Space is um, an epic adventure of some aliens that come to Earth in the form of clowns. Although, it is very subtly mentioned that... Perhaps our idea of clowns come from the fact that these aliens have visited us before. Yeah, no, I love that. Anyway, it's really it's a really dumb film, but um, but I really liked it. It has its charm to it, and you can tell that everyone making it are just they're trying so hard not to just burst out laughing because it's just yeah. a, it's not a very good film, but they clearly had fun making it. And it's there's so much enjoyment, sort of, because of course there's on one side there is effort being put into a film, but there's also a certain amount of enjoyment being put into films that I think I value, because you know sometimes people suffer making them, and that's respectful, but also a bit um has a different effect on I think on the viewer than a film that is not only just with effort but also fun and just like it's a positive effort rather than a sort of negative um, suffering effort. I mean, Killer Clowns from Outer Space though, when it comes to um. It's, it knows what it knows what it's doing. It's no, it knows what it's doing. But here, here's my even harder take. I actually enjoyed like the time watching that film. I enjoyed it way more than watching Joker. Okay. <laughs> it's a much more enjoyable film because better it clowns. Just, be, better clowns. No, those clowns are damn weird. They're actually it's very scary. well made. To be fair. The, yeah, the, the the prosthetics are pretty yeah. crazy. I don't know if it's prosthetic. It might be. It might be plasticine. Potentially. Um, whatever it is. It's very good though. The makeup and. Uh, Costume department is crazy on that film. And the script, f- the script for Killer Clowns Out of Space is better than the script for Nightmare on Elm Street, and you cannot change my mind. One thing that yeah, really bothered Nightmare me, on Nightmare on Elm Street, I will say, was very good for the whole dream thing, the whole, um, I guess, a visualization of how dreams work. I love that you know when 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 she goes down into the basement and there is another door, so she goes down further into the basement. Only when she steps out, it's actually back into the you know Freddy Krueger's boiler room. You know, it's like um that idea of dreams, sort of not only the whole th- you know the horror of it of oh no it's scary because you can't sleep, sleep isn't safe, but also the whole idea of dreams being um it, it's a very good at visualizing dreams. But I think the script is pretty terrible. Freddy Krueger is a relatively boring villain. Not gonna lie. Um, and I think it's overrated. I, I'll stop there. But So from horror at the beginning to horror at the end. Yeah, so we go. really have managed to do an extra spooky films and friends. So before we wrap up, um, every, we'll leave you all with the um, fact that um, we can no longer talk about Blade Runner as being a film set in the future. It's currently taking place in the present, November 2019 in Los Angeles. This is true. And one day, and by one day I mean in a month, it's going to be taking place in the past and that is a terrifying thought uh, so you can find me on uh, twitter at josh sandy and on instagram at josh w sandy yeah and i am on twitter and instagram as tobias Soar. thank you very much for listening thank you very much oliver for coming on thanks for having me and we will be back next week see you all very soon